Gospel of Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And as I told you, I've been thinking about some things over the last few weeks and months. And uh, the Lord led me to this scripture. And I hope it, it outlines something for us this morning that we can kind of uh, uh, give us a, a, a foundation upon so much of what is going on in our world and understanding and appreciating really what God is doing and what are the lessons that God has for us. Luke chapter 12, I want to begin here with verse 50, uh, verse 54, and then we're going to read down through verse 56, and then we'll, we'll skip down to chapter 13. Can I invite you to stand for just a moment here in deference to God's word, and let us hear this word together. Beginning in Luke 12, verse 54, Jesus said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Then down to verse 13, or or chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. May God add his blessing to his word. Please be seated. I don't know about you, but I was shaken this week when I saw the video of a violent and tremendous explosion that rocked Beirut, Lebanon. The video footage was absolutely terrifying as hundreds were killed, thousands injured, and miles of buildings were destroyed or damaged. Multitudes were left homeless. We're living in a time when it just seems that bad news is heaped upon more bad news. I saw recently someone make the point that technology has produced a faux omniscience and omnipresence that in fact is hurting mankind and not helping it. With technology, think about it, we are now instantly aware of and consumed by whatever the latest tragedy crisis and or scandal is anywhere in the world and this person asked the question could it be that God didn't wire us to carry every event taking place in every part of our world at every moment as if it were ours that is an incredibly heavy burden to bear In fact, I have come to believe that sometimes the healthiest thing that I can do is turn the TV off. Forget the news feed. Ignore the social media. Maybe there is a grace in learning to 
not see the world through the headlines, but instead to see through the people and mercies that are all around me. For instance, if I really think about it, my headline this morning is, my wife loves me in spite of who I am. I have four amazing children, every one of them makes me incredibly proud. My headline this morning is, I've had the privilege of serving a church for 25 years, loving the church, and a church where Jesus is unapologetically at the center, and we come and gather and worship him. My headline this morning is, is that God loves you and wants you to know the depth of his love for you. You see, if we really step back and we see what's all around us, the bad news will always get our attention. And as a result, despite the fact that all around us is, in fact, blessing and life and hope, we could easily end up in despair and grief and depression. So where are you this morning? Now, having said all of that, we, the truth is we cannot ignore what is happening in our world. As we come to a passage like this in Luke, I first want you to notice right off the bat that Jesus, in fact, does want us to interpret this present time. That's the first thing that strikes me here. Jesus expects his people to interpret, understand, discern our present time, whatever time that may be. Jesus here is teaching a crowd, and he tells those listening, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you surmise and understand it's going to rain soon, and it does. Or when a south wind begins to blow, you say, it's going to get hot, and it is. If we get to play college football this year, and the Michigan Wolverines march into Ohio Stadium, we know what's going to happen. The Buckeyes will win another time. That's that's just kind of the way it is. And so in some ways, Jesus says, we understand the weather. We understand our time. But then Jesus uses this word, hypocrites. He says, you are two-faced. With one face, you can predict the weather. But with the other, you are unaware and cannot interpret what is going on around you at this present time. And so what I want you to see is that Jesus wants us to clearly understand our present time. That's why I took the time last week to share the message that I shared. One of the things that this coronavirus should do for all of us is reinforce the message that we must be ready for Christ's return. It's imminent. From the moment in Acts 11, chapter 1, where the disciples have just seen Jesus ascend to the Father, and the angel Gabriel spoke to them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking at the heavens? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The truth is, Christ is coming again. We are living in the last days. And when he comes, let me remind you, he is going to judge the world. Matthew 25, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes into his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. 
And he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Jesus tells us there will be judgment. Jesus warns those who are not ready to meet him. In Luke 21, he says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the earth. Think about that. It will come like a trap. People unaware, caught up in dissipation. Now what is dissipation? It is that they are squandering their resources, squandering their life on their money and things. They're wasting their life in drunkenness, concerned about the anxieties of this life. They will be unready and the patience of God will have been exhausted. And so I pled with you last week, be ready. Jesus taught us that there would be signposts to his coming, like wars and famines and earthquakes. He called these signs birth pains, signaling that when he comes, a new world will begin. In Romans, Paul continues with that image, and he said, all creation groans. We know that the whole creation has been groaning are in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. There's that phrase again. We're to understand this present time. Paul writes, the creation waits in an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That's us. My point is, is that Jesus wants us to see the birth pains including this COVID-19, as reminders and alerts that he is coming and we need to be ready. Jesus said, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And this morning, the sad truth is that so many are not ready. But you can be. The way to be ready is to humble yourself before Jesus Christ. To recognize your need for forgiveness of your sins. And to recognize that he is the salvation and walk in his light. Paul would write, but you brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are children of light and children of the day. In other words, we are children of that day. We're ready as the church, if we know Jesus Christ is our Savior. So we must be able then to interpret this present time. But this is so important, and I want you to notice this. Jesus says we must not only be able to interpret this present time, but hear this, we must interpret this present time correctly. Correctly. I think it is interesting, Luke says, there were some there at that present time, that's an interesting phrase, as Jesus talks about interpreting this present time, Luke takes that and he tells us that there were those listening at that present time who began to discuss what was happening in the world. And indeed, as they looked around, there were some terrible things that had occurred. The people told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now let me just take a moment and explain what that statement tells us is 
Recently, apparently, there had been some Galileans who had made the trek south to Jerusalem and somehow they had run afoul of Pilate, the Roman governor. We don't know what they did, but we do know they were religious. We're told that Pilate had mingled their blood with their sacrifices. In other words, they were going to the temple to make a sacrificial sin offering of an animal, and Pilate had them killed. And in some way, in some dastardly way, he mixed their blood with their sacrifices on that very altar. For a Jew, it would have been a terrible atrocity to consider to be killed while worshiping. It was an evil act. Think about our response when we hear that a shooter has come into a church service. Reprehensible at every degree, and even more sinister, it was the act of the government. And of course, we're going to hear Pilate's name again at the trial of Jesus, but Luke is foreshadowing the historical record shows that he is a brutal man and a tyrant. But Jesus takes that event of state-sanctioned terror, and he mentions another event. This one appeared to be a random misfortune. A tower in Siloam had apparently collapsed and killed 18 bystanders. One disaster was the fruit of human wickedness. The other was apparently an accident. Well, the crowds began to talk and they began to address this issue and began to speculate on this present time and the meaning of what had happened. Now, apparently, the thinking of the day was that in some way the Galileans had sinned to deserve such a horrendous fate in the temple of God. I mean, if they were righteous, God would have protected them, right? The question was, is this a specific act of God's judgment on their sin? That was their thinking. This is how they interpreted those events. And this thinking extended to the 18 people who had died under the tower. They must have been sinners too to have experienced such a horrible fate. Now, I want to take a moment here and just make a couple of observations. Notice that Jesus will focus his attention here on the spiritual rather than the political. The spiritual for Christ trumps the political. The first thing I I note here is that Jesus has a perfect opportunity to lay into and trash Pilate and the government system that existed, right? In interpreting these events, he could have said any number of things about the government, their overreach, their evil, and he would have been right. He could have made this a political discussion and made a clear statement about the wickedness of Pilate and the Roman occupation and its clear subjugation of God's people. But did Jesus do that? No, he does not. In fact, what astounds me as I look at the ministry of Jesus 
What surprises me is how often Jesus refuses to enter the political fray. At a time when so many of the Jews were looking for a Messiah who would deliver them from their political oppressions, he refuses to go there. He could have made a lot of people very happy in that moment by lambasting Pilate. Pilate was an awful man. And Jesus could have scored a lot of points with the people if he had stood up and given a speech then and there on the evils of the Roman government and the government system as it existed. But it's significant to me that Jesus doesn't do that. You might even say that Jesus almost seems ambivalent, if not oblivious, to the politics of it all. In other words, Jesus makes it clear that to interpret these events in simply political terms alone is not the correct interpretation of these times. Are you listening? As many of you know, I believe God began to work in my heart as a sophomore in high school toward the call of ministry. However, if God had not called me to ministry, I am pretty sure I would have pursued a role in politics. I dreamed as a young man of becoming a lawyer and then running for office someday. Before I was out of elementary school, I remember reading books by Jack Kemp. I don't remember, or I don't know how many of you recall Jack Kemp, but I could articulate the basics of supply-side economics, the evils of communism, and the foundation of American conservatism. I could do that. In fifth grade, I remember being so disappointed my mother would not let me stay home from school to watch Ronald Reagan's inauguration. So I had her use a tape recorder. Remember one of these? (laughs) This is before DVRs and VCRs. And so I had her turn the TV on and set up this tape recorder so she could tape the speech so I could listen to it when I got home. I uh, remember in school that that running for office was something I I did regularly. And I've got to tell you, I never lost an election. It was probably my boyish charm, my good looks, that kind of thing. My first election was, amen. I told my son today, man, are you handsome, especially with that mask on. You know, I, I don't know. My first election was running for mayor in seventh grade for, the, uh, for a science project. We were doing a city, and I, I won and became the mayor of the city. Then I went on to be class president, student council president in high school, ran for class president in college, student body president at Asbury my senior year. But when I began to realize God's call to ministry, he made it clear that the way to change the world wasn't political. It was spiritual. And if I really wanted to make an eternal difference, then I needed to pursue ministry. And I believe that is true today. I saw this weekend that Jerry Falwell Jr. has been forced to step down as president of Liberty University. Now, Liberty University is probably the largest Christian uh, education institution in the country, if not the world. 
And maybe you follow that story, maybe you haven't, and I won't go too far here, but I think if you look carefully at his record, you will see a man who spent more time in political circles than prayer circles, and he lost his way. You will see a man enticed by money and power rather than engrossed in mission and God's purposes. Matthew Henry said long ago, I reckon him a Christian indeed that is neither ashamed of the gospel nor ashamed to it. Oh, that we would live in a way that would not bring shame to the gospel. And we remember who we put our faith in. You see, I think that's a reminder to us this morning that during this season, a religion that needs a politician to protect it is not the Christian faith. It has never been. Because if death couldn't hold Jesus, then come what may, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party will not be able to hold him back either. The Apostle Paul tells us, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. It is a foregone conclusion that nothing will stop the kingdom of Christ. But friends, we must choose today to follow him. Church, follow him, not a particular politician. Listen, I've learned this. Politicians are what they are. There is corruption. There are agendas. We've seen that in Ohio recently with the bribery scandal involving First Energy and the Speaker of the House of Representatives. The truth is, we live in Babylon. We live in an evil age with evil systems and and we live in an era when, when there is corruption. That is accurately and correctly understanding our time. But this moment in our history is an opportunity for the church to rise up and shine. To be people of integrity and honesty and decency. And yes, to value life. I think about every time, every time I come into this place and I see you wearing your masks. We serve a savior who willingly took on flesh and humbled himself in obedience to his father. All I know is this, and and I'll just say this. All I know is this, is that Jesus was willing to experience humiliation, suffering, and death to save the people he loved doesn't seem to me to be a great stretch to suggest that if Jesus was willing to bear a cross for us, that that we can't wear a mask during this season to protect the lives of those around us. Now, I know that there are some who have their own physical conditions, and that's not capable, and I'm not making any judgment there. But let us, as Christians, not let our convenience overshadow our caring. Let's not, as Christians, let our liberty become more important than our love. Because when I look at the scriptures and I see the scriptures outlined, I see that liberty always gives Christians more opportunity to love and demonstrate that love. And so my prayer has been that in this crisis, we will demonstrate the very best of the church. 
that we model the one who came to give life. Our mission as a church is said to be to love people to life in Jesus Christ. And so as a church, we must interpret the times correctly. And so our question is, how do we love best people to life in Jesus during this present time? Jesus focuses attention on the spiritual rather than the political. Now, having said that, what were the spiritual implications of what Jesus said? Well, second, I want you to notice this. Jesus refuses to let us focus on the sins of others. I've already expressed it, but notice where the crowd goes. They surmise that the reason these people died in such horrendous ways is because they were sinners. Worse than other Galileans, and so God didn't protect them. I I kind of saw this philosophy expose itself when Governor DeWine this week first announced that he had been tested positive for COVID-19. The critics came out furiously to deride him. And I heard the word karma mentioned several times by Christians. May I remind you that as Christians, we do not believe in karma? (laughs) Now, do actions have reactions? Certainly. But karma is a pagan idea. But in fact, that's what these people around Jesus were wondering. They died in a great, tragedy and so they must have sinned greatly but we jesus tells us must interpret the times correctly the crowds want to know from jesus what's then the meaning of this tragedy at the temple jesus goes further and asks well what's the meaning of the tower falling on 18 people and jesus's answer amazes me He draws a meaning from these disasters that relates to everyone, not just the ones who died. Because in both cases, he says, no, those who were murdered by Pilate and those who were crushed under the tower were not worse sinners than you. Now, now wait a minute, Jesus. We were talking about their sin. Why did you bring up my sin? They they weren't asking the question about their sins. They were curious about these other people. They wanted to know what the disasters meant for these victims, not for the rest of us. And this is what makes Jesus' answer so surprising. In essence, he said that the meaning of these disasters is a message to everyone. And the message is this. Repent or perish. He says it twice. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Verse 3. And by the way, if you missed it the first time, let me say it again in verse 5. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. What was Jesus doing? He was redirecting the people's astonishment 
The astonishment that prompted these folks to interpret the times were wrong. They were astonished that people were murdered so cruelly and crushed so meaninglessly. But Jesus comes along and he says, what you ought to be astonished at is that you were not the one murdered and crushed. In fact, if you don't repent, you yourselves will meet a judgment like that someday. Wow, that's harsh. But beyond that is a message of mercy. And don't miss this. Jesus is telling us that God has a merciful message in every disaster. The message is we are all sinners. We're bound for destruction. And disasters are a gracious summons from God to repent and be saved while there is still time. So Jesus turns from the dead to the living and essentially says, let's not talk about the dead, let's talk about you. This is much more urgent. What happened to them is really about you. Your biggest issue is not their sin, it's your sin. And listen, church, our biggest issue isn't the corruption in society. It's the corruption in the church. Our biggest issue is not the sinfulness of a government. Our most pressing issue is the sin in us. And God's message for the world in this coronavirus outbreak is a message of mercy. And it's a reminder. He's calling the world to repentance while there is still Time. You're a sinner. You need a savior. To repent is to change your mind. But it's more than that. It's more than what you think. It becomes all about what you love. Jesus made this very clear when he said that this is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul And with all your mind. Friend this morning. Do you love him like that today? Everything. I get convicted. If you spend more time watching the news. Than you spend time with him. Your love may be somewhere else. Is he your first love? Your passionate love? Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Those are incredible words. Jesus refuses to be a second love. Now here's the thing, when we love God first, when we treasure him above all things, what we discover is that we're going to rightly love our family and our neighbors, and our church. But we must come to understand he is of infinite value. And we love him because he first loved us. Jesus reminds us here, you cannot stop death, whether it's through corona, cancer, old age, an accident, 
an atrocity, you fill in the blank. But he reminds us, you have a God who loves you and has provided forgiveness of your sins when you make a decision to give your whole heart back to him. But it's going to take something from you. It takes humility. You know, in two weeks, we are going to offer the celebration of baptism. The Bible says this, repent and be baptized. Very simple. It is a symbol that your heart has changed and you want with everything in you to put him first and that you believe that you've accepted Christ and are clothed in his righteousness. Baptism is one of those ways that we get ready for that day, whenever it comes. And yet, some of you have not been baptized. And I can't help but think, well, what is holding you back? And so often, it's just one answer. Pride. 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 I challenge you today. Say yes to Christ and what he offers. Repent of your sin and decide to live totally for him. That's the lesson we're learning in this time of corona. Humility. Grace for one another. And love for God. May God have his perfect will in our church. Let's pray together. Lord, I I just want to pray for those who are listening, whether they're here in the sanctuary or they may be online. I pray, Lord, that you would convict us of our sin. That we would stop worrying about all the wickedness and evil in our world around us. And for this moment, we would look look at ourselves Am I right with you? Do I love you as you ought to be loved? Lord, we are not promised tomorrow. Father, last week I was reading the the, uh, Facebook post of a pastor I had known many years ago in Louisville. And he was writing, he had contracted corona and was writing to his church as he lay in a hospital bed. And he described, Lord, how much it had taken out of him and what a battle it was. Father, he implored the church to be careful and cautious and loving one another and how they, they, they work together to, uh, to commune and, and be together. And he told them to, to be distant and, and to, to wear a mask and all those things we might expect. But then he told his church, no matter what happens, I'm a victor in Christ, a champion, and it's okay. Father, last week he, he went to heaven. I'm thankful, Lord, that he left a legacy of faithfulness and godliness. And he showed us what love looked like. That no matter what, Lord, he knew that, that you were good. I pray, Lord, that wherever I lead this church, I will always be the kind of man that says, Jesus, 
is worthy of our adoration. Forgive me, Lord, when I've fallen short. Renew in my spirit today that hope. And Father, if there's someone here today who still hasn't said yes, who still hasn't humbled themselves, I pray, Lord, that all that is going on around us, that they might interpret the time correctly. And they would see that, Lord, you are summoning them, that your patience is real, that you are calling them to know you and to love you and to give you, Lord, themselves completely. May they say yes to your gift in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name.